Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote to cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Greetings, Job Shop listener. Your host, Jay Jacobs here, kicking off another episode of the Job Shop Show today with Justin Quinn from Focused on Machining. Focused on Machining is a machine shop in Denver, Colorado. They were started in 2008, and Justin acquired the business in 2016. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. Appreciate it. So there are quite a few topics I want to get a chance to talk with you about today. In particular, the process of how you acquired a shop, your background as a commercial banker, the 3D printer which you've bought and brought in-house, how you went about getting ISO certified and why you decided to do so. But first, I always like a company name that tells you exactly what they do. Whenever I told someone I was from Rapid Sheet Metal, which is the shop that I used to own, they always knew exactly what we did. Focused on Machining certainly does that too. How did the name come about? The name of Focused on Machining, I actually inherited when I when I purchased the company. Um, but I do know that, that the previous owner, he had worked for a couple other manufacturing companies in his career, um, but he really enjoyed the machining aspect of it. And I know when he set out to start focused on machining in 2008, that he wanted to be a machine shop. He didn't, he didn't want to focus on other aspects of manufacturing. So I, I kind of think that's where it came from. It was just a, a simple name. And then like you said, it tells exactly what we do. And when I took over, I wasn't crazy about the name. Um, I wasn't crazy about the branding, mm-hmm. but as I, as I kind of got into it a little bit, I, I, I agree, you know, that it, it definitely is very simple and it tells you exactly what we do. You know, if you're looking for a machine shop, machining services, that's what we do. And we're highly focused on that. So I decided to leave the name in place. Um, I've recently rebranded it, mm-hmm. changed the logo a little bit, uh, but I've decided to keep the name in place. Oh, I like it. And I was thinking also that it's probably good for recruiting for team members who really care about machining that they know that is what they're going to do at your company, that your company's not going to lose its focus and get into another process or processes and machining won't be as important. So, yeah, I I think it's a good pick. On the flip side, you started your career in the Air Force as an aircraft mechanic, and one would not have guessed you would own a machine shop one day from that start of a career path. How did that happen? Well, uh, I'll, I'll say that my, my desire to own a business 
you know, started much before the Air Force. Um, I, I come from a, a somewhat entrepreneurial family. Um, you know, my both my grandparents are hardworking farmers. You know, born and raised in Kansas, and and they moved to Colorado for work. Uh, but they also own their own farm. Um, so I grew up out there on the farm with my grandma and grandpa. And uh, of course, you know, they did beef. Uh, they raised beef for other people. Um, but really what kind of got me into that was they did a lot of custom cutting. So we had a 10 acre farm where we grew, you know, hay and alfalfa, but, uh, they would basically subcontract with other farms around in the area. And we would go cut, uh, bale and stack their hay for them in the summertime. Um, so that's kind of where some of my work ethic came from, you know, like I said, the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, I definitely have other family members that own their own businesses as well. So I've always, always wanted to own my own business. I just never knew what, um, and that's kind of where the Air Force and then my, my next career in banking kind of led me to manufacturing. Let's talk a little bit then about your career as a banker, and specifically, you spent eight years in banking, and commercial banking was the side of banking that you focused on focused on banking there so yeah. you, you looked at a lot of financials right different companies that, that, yeah absolutely so um you know after the air force i, I went to college and i got my bachelor's in finance mm-hmm. um and i graduated in 2010 which you know after the the meltdown of 2008 the the economy really hadn't recovered yet so it wasn't a fantastic time to have a finance degree um so i really kind of fell into banking by accident a little bit. Um, the, the CEO of the bank I worked for, um, he actually bought the bank in 2009 and he was an alumni of the university. I went to uh, university of Northern Colorado. Um, and so he and I had met through some events up at the, up at the college. Hmm. And I, I kind of just took a liking to him. You know, he, he really sparked something into me. The you know he was telling a story about how he wanted to buy a bank, and uh, you know he told the whole story about how banks were troubled during this time, and and he wanted to buy a small bank that wasn't overly burdened with bad debt, and then he felt like he could really grow it because he would be one of the only banks in town that had clean capital and was able to lend. Gotcha. So you know I got his business card when I was uh, a senior in college, and um, I called him up. And he had just purchased the bank, so he didn't really have a lot of opportunities for a young person like myself who didn't have a ton of experience but had, you know, a good base of knowledge to start with. So I actually started at an internship um, with a company called Brown Brothers Harriman. Um, They're a, a financial company, and basically my job there was to balance trades with Wall Street uh, the day after. So they would make a bunch of trades on Wall Street. I would reach out between a couple of brokers and make sure that all the values met up and spreadsheets aligned. And so it, it was really kind of a mundane job. I was just managing spreadsheets and making sure numbers matched. Um, but the whole time during this, this six-month internship, I, I probably emailed and bugged uh, the CEO of the bank, I'd say at least once a week, if not more. Um, and, and finally, springtime rolled around because I graduated in December. So finally, springtime rolled around and he, he, he finally sat down and had an interview with me. 
Um, and come to find out after the fact, he told me the only reason he hired me is because I never, I never gave up. I never stopped. I, I just kept bugging him. And, and he was like, well, if this guy's this persistent, you know, he'll, he'll be, he'll be something, something worthwhile for us. So I left, uh, that internship. I had a guaranteed position. I could have stayed there. Um, uh, I had a full-time opportunity, but, uh, the, the bank, offered me a, another internship. It was a paid internship, but I had no guarantee on the back end. It was three months, uh, mm-hmm. internship. So I took it. You know, like I said, I knew, I knew this guy was someone I wanted to work with and for and learn from. So I took the internship and started in the finance department. Um, really just doing tons of odds and ends things, you know, managing financials, doing reporting for the bank. Um, and then I started, you know, I kind of had a, a, a leg up on Excel from a lot of folks. I was really advanced in Excel. I took some Excel classes uh, at the university. Um, so when people started to understand my capabilities with spreadsheets and stuff like that, I started getting farmed out to all the different departments in the bank and, and building custom reports and spreadsheets for them. Um, so I, I kind of got my name spread around the bank, which at that time was really small. We were only, I think I was the 30th employee at the time. So a pretty small bank right. um, and just started, you know, doing whatever I could. And, and finally, I got an opportunity about a year later to uh, move into the underwriting department. Um, so I did that. I, uh, I started underwriting commercial loans. Um, I did that for, I want to say, two years, two and a half years. Um, and the whole time I was in there, I, I really had my eyes set on being a commercial banker. Um, you know, the, the lenders in a bank are kind of the salespeople, if you will. Um, so they're the ones that are in charge of, of drumming up the business, meeting customers and businesses, and then studying their financials and determining, you know, whether they're bankable or, or what kind of products to offer, et cetera. So after a couple of years in underwriting, I got an opportunity um, as a junior lender. And Justin, uh, let me ask yeah. you, before you talk about the, the your role as a junior lender. What is underwriting at a bank when you say that? So underwriting is essentially financial analysis. Um, you know, when, when you go to a bank and they request three years of tax returns and three years of personal financials and your credit report and all that, mm-hmm. all of that information is going into an analysis tool, whether it's a spreadsheet or a customized software. Um, honestly, the that all underwriters are doing is determining the ability to repay uh, debt. And they do that through a couple of metrics. You know, what we used a lot was called the debt service coverage ratio. Right. So basically we would, we would take your financials and um, a bank is looking at cash flow. They're not, I mean, of course they want to see profits um, and things like that, but they're really looking at cash flow, trying to understand how money is moving in and out of the company and determining if that source of cash coming in and out is sufficient to pay debt. Um, and what, you know, and that kind of boils down to the debt service coverage ratio where we would determine the amount of, of debt they're looking for, the size of the loan. Obviously that would give us our loan payment. And then we would see how much cash flow they have to service that payment. We wanted to see, you know, one and a quarter to one and a half times cash flow over the debt payment. So if someone on their profit and loss statement showed that they were making money and perhaps a lot of money, they may actually not have the cash flow though to support 
a loan that they're requesting. Is that, did you see that at times? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Um, there's, you know, for owners of companies, depending on what type of entity you have set up, uh, you know, the most common small business is the LLC. Uh, there's multiple, multiple ways for owners to take money out of that entity that don't necessarily show on the income statement. Um, so you could have, like, just like you said, you could have a very profitable company when you look at the income statement, but then you boil down into the cash flow and you can see that the owner is financing, you know, their lavish lifestyle maybe through the company. And while it's uh, greatly profitable, when you look at what we call the global scenario, where that includes the business, the owner, any other uh, owners, any other businesses they may have, commercial real estate, when you put that all together, that's when you can really see, okay, as, as an entire entity, um, where is the cash going and are, are they retaining cash or, or spending using cash? And that essentially gives a bank or somebody loaning money a sense of risk of making that loan and their, their ability to repay it based upon the cash. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of where, where banks, in my opinion, get stuck. You know, that's a little counterintuitive, right? They want to see a really healthy, profitable entity that retains their cash and, you know, saves their cash. But the flip side is a company that does that doesn't need to borrow and doesn't need debt. So it's, right. and that's, that's what I think where banks are, are, are in trouble these days is because they're, you know, they're, they're so focused on, on these metrics that they're kind of leaving small banks out of it a little bit because, you know, small banks are reinvested or small companies are reinvesting in themselves. And so there's not a lot of cash left over. Uh, they may be profitable, but uh, especially in the machine shop world, you know, our capital expenditures are, are huge. Right. I mean, right. you know, we, we traditionally spend more on equipment than we make in a couple years of net profit. So... Uh, which, you know, banks, it's nice because there's always that lending opportunity, but there's always the reinvestment. There's not a lot of cash left over um, to just put in a bank account and let's sit there for a while. Underwriting then sounds like it's the perfect way to get to understand all the financial metrics that you need then to become a junior lender, which was your next step. Yeah, yeah. So that's really the base. You know, you um, underwriting. You really got to understand business financials, and you got to understand how the business operates and what it does just by reading the financials. Um, and then that's really the base of becoming the lender. Uh, really, the, the a lender is still an underwriter at heart. They're just more externally focused than internally focused. Uh, you know, they're the ones that are out there meeting businesses and trying to uncover opportunities for the underwriters and other bankers to analyze and determine whether they want to take on as a customer. It makes sense because if you are a, a sense, a salesperson for the bank, if you bring bad deals to the table, then you've wasted a lot of your time where you can't spend the time on making a better sale or sale is yeah. likely yeah. to happen. Yeah. In, in time and money, you know, a bank lives and dies by, by their loan portfolio. And, you know, as, as, as we've seen with interest rates in the past, you know, 10 years, they've been very low, which, which is great. But uh, from the banking perspective, it's tough because their margin is so much smaller. So, 
you know, if, if a bank writes off a $100,000 loan, it could take them multiple years to make up that 100000 they lost in that bad, bad debt. So that's why they're so risk-averse. The bad, exactly. loan, bad loans really have a big impact. Yeah. And, and that was kind of my story when I was the banker to small business owners, you know, was... You know, if you, if you're a, if you're an equity investor, if you're buying stocks in the stock market, you're expecting an eight, 10, 12 plus percent return per year. Um, you know, that's, that's what you're expected. But the risk you're taking is if that company goes out of business, you lose everything. Uh, the bank, a traditional net margin in the bank, especially nowadays is, is a couple percent, you know, so you're lending out, uh, six figures and you're going to make 2% per year if everything goes right. Uh, so the margins are very small. So as a commercial banker, did you come across a lot of job shops or did you try to, did you specialize in job shops or specialize in manufacturing? What, what did you like to do while you were out there? Yeah. So when I, when I first got my start in, in junior or a, a junior lender, um, I kind of inherited a small portfolio and I was actually concentrated in construction mostly. So I had a lot of, uh, uh, residential construction loans, commercial construction loans, and then companies that were construction companies. So I, I had a pretty heavy concentration in that, but I did have a handful of manufacturers. Um, I had one job shop and then I had a couple other companies, uh, one, they manufactured like wood shutters, custom wood shutters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, not traditional machining, but very similar. Um, and a couple other, you know, I had a sheet metal shop as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where, that, that's where I really got my draw into manufacturing. Um, you know, I always tell people that when I, when I got out of the Air Force, I was tired of working outside, tired of getting rained on, snowed on. You know, I wanted to work in an office. I wanted to, you know, work in an office in a, in a city location. Um, and, and then I obtained that. And then I realized that, well, this isn't all it's cracked up to be either. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so I kind of, I wanted to get back towards something more, as I kind of call blue collar, you know, where you're, you're kind of working with your hands a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and that's how I landed in manufacturing. Uh, I really, the, the folks that I got to meet with um, in, in the manufacturing companies I was financing, I just really liked the people a lot. Um, I started to get involved in our local trade association, the, the tooling and machining association here in Denver um, ah. as a banker. And uh, really just, just a really good group of people, really down to earth, um, you know, just, just a great group of people. And I just found myself attracted to, to that group a lot. Um, and that's kind of what started me on the, the job shop manufacturing hunt. Before we leave your experience as a banker, what would you tell a job shop owner on how to look best to a bank? So we're looking for some insider tips here. (laughs) Uh, well, that's a challenge. That's a challenging one. And I, I honestly struggle with that myself. Um, it, you know, you've got to, you've got to know your, your costs and your cost structure. Um, there's a, a pretty high level of fixed costs in a job shop, you know, especially if you have mm-hmm. debt, especially if you're financing your equipment, 
you know, you have the factory to pay for, you have the rent, you have payroll, uh, any equipment um, purchases that you need to make. So there's a, there's a certain number that you've got to do every month just to break even, you know, before mm-hmm. you even start putting anything in the bank. There's a, and you got you got to find out what that number is. Um, and then you've got to convert that into some sort of a rate to get your, your pricing in line to make sure that you're valuing your time properly and so you can be profitable. Um, and then from there, it's, for me, it's, it's being conservative financially. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many salesmen walk through my front door in a week trying to get me to buy this new tool or, or this new product that's going to completely help me in the shop. And, and if I, if I bought everything that they sold me on, you know, we'd be out of business probably two and a half years ago when I bought the company. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's really, it's really guarding, guarding capital. Um, you know, when you, when you do have profits, you know, hoard that cash and, and really hang on to it as, as much as you can. Um, and then be be wise with your investments. Um, really try to think long term with your investments because one, they are so expensive, and they do use that cash. So mm-hmm. that's what I've done these past couple of years is really bust my butt to be as efficient as we can to to save money every spot we can. Um, really get our costs as lean as we can, and then to make smart smart investments for the long term with that money. Any thoughts on whether, well, just in general, your thoughts on financing a hundred percent of a piece of equipment or say 80% or some other smaller portion of the price of, of a piece of equipment. Uh, and I'm specifically talking yeah. about a, a hard asset that, you know, sure. there is a market for out there. Yeah. So as a, as a, as a former banker, I would say, you know, hundred percent finance is crazy, but as a job shop owner, it's almost the only way to, to really, to grow, to grow at the rate, you know, I like to grow, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, job shop margins aren't, aren't huge. Uh, you're not gonna, unless you're a big company, um, but smaller companies like, like myself, um, you're, it's going to take you, if you were going to pay cash for equipment, you might own, buy a piece of equipment every five to 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, I, I'm not afraid of 100% financing on, on CNC equipment. Uh, one, the resale value is, is there. Um, you know, if you needed to resale it, uh, the, the equipment hold their value pretty good. Um, I, I have uh, two pieces of equipment in the shop that I financed, and I've done both 100% financing on them. Um, that being said, you're not going to get that financing through a traditional bank. You're going to have to find an equipment finance company um, or a leasing company to do that for you. And I, I found that uh, there's a couple companies out there that specialize in CNC equipment finance, and they are more than willing to do 100% finance. They're happy to do it. Their interest rates are better than the banks are anyways. Um, yes. And they're just a really good partner to, to be with. Um, when it comes to financing equipment. Did you go with a pure lease where the entire payment is expensable or did you do a capitalized lease where essentially it was structured like a loan with a 
principal that was not expensable and only the interest portion being expensable? Yeah, I did a capital lease uh, on both of my pieces. Um, So we treat it just like a loan. Uh, We place it on our books just like a loan. Every Mm -hmm. payment, a portion goes to principal and a portion goes to interest. Um, And really, it it makes sense for me, especially this early on, uh, where, you know, we're the past couple of years, we've struggled to be profitable. Uh, We're profitable now. So I I wasn't really looking for additional expenses. Um, You know, I I like having the asset on my balance sheet. Uh, We need assets to build up the balance sheet. So I, the capital lease was, was a better fit for us for sure. So I think what I'm hearing here then is that until you really can confidently use a true lease as a way to reduce expenses and thus income taxes, it's probably better to use a capital lease. And I would think also from a bank's perspective, they want to see that asset on the balance sheet as well. Yeah, especially with the the tax deductions you get on equipment, you know, the the depreciation schedule on equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a small shop like myself and you're maybe buying one machine a year, you can you can depreciate that entire machine in one year. Um, so really you're you're getting to expense the whole machine in that one year if you have enough income from a, to from a- from a tax perspective anyways. Okay. From a, yeah. Yeah. So, so tax perspective for, for me anyways, it's been a better fit than the lease because we're taking advantage of the full cost of the equipment through depreciation. Great point. That's a great point. All right. So it got to the point where you went to enough association meetings. You had enough customers who were job shops. You were getting an itch, it sounds like, to be your own boss and not be in a desk job 100%. You, well, what was the true catalyst to say, yes, this is the time to become a job shop owner? Yeah, so it was, it was kind of twofold. Um, one, the first being, I just, especially after going through so many financials of so many different companies and meeting the folks, you know, I, I kind of started to realize, and without, you know, sounding arrogant, I, I, I noticed that these successful business owners are, are no smarter, no more special than I am. There's, there's no reason why I can't be successful as a business owner as well. Um, and then the the second side was kind of an external. Uh, our bank had gone through a couple mergers, um, and, and the culture had changed, and it wasn't a fun place to work anymore. Mm. Um, and then it was finally sold to a bigger bank, a regional bank, and, and that's when I was like, you know, this is I, I'm not, you know, I liked what I did. I made a, a really good living doing it, but I, I wasn't in love with it. I wasn't passionate about it. Um, and that's when, you know, I started having conversations with my wife and, and really kind of looking internally and just making that decision to, you know, I don't want to just work for the rest of my life. I want to be passionate about what I do. Um, and I want to do something I enjoy. And that's when we made the decision to, to start seeking out opportunities and trying to buy a company. 
Um, and it was a long, long process. Uh, it, it was a, a two-year process from the time I committed to say, yes, we're going to buy a shop until we close. It was two years. So it, wow. was, a, it was a long, a long, the, you know, the hardest part was finding, finding opportunities, you know, was because a lot of small job shops, there, there's no vehicle for them to be sold. It's not, uh, you know, you, you, you hear about big companies getting bought and sold all the time, but right. when you're a small little company, there's no marketplace for you. There's no, there's no source uh, of people that are trading companies back and forth. So I really had to leverage the network of folks I've met through the trade association. Um, in fact, the, the gentleman that put me in touch with the owner of this company was the insurance broker. Uh, he'd been the insurance broker since day one and he kind of knew everybody in the industry. And, and, you know, I, I reached out to him and told him what I wanted, what I wanted to do. And he was like, well, I have no idea. Let me, let me think about it. And, he, he put me in touch with a couple of people that, you know, he's like, they're a little bit older. I don't know if they want to sell or not, but they might. You should reach out to them. And that's all he did. You know, he just made the connection. And then from right. there, I started reaching out to folks and, and seeing if there was interest there. And then we started working on, on offers from there. Did you have specific criteria that you mapped out ahead of time in what you were looking for? parameters of minimums and maximums in different areas? Um, not really. I would say the only parameter I had was on the maximum only because, you know, I, I didn't have the personal financials to, to really put a ton of money into it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so that kind of limited me on the upper end. Um, it was about, you know, any, any shop doing about a, a million to 2 million was kind of the upper limit of what I was looking at only, only because, you know, thinking this owner is going to want money down mm -hmm. or if I do finance through a bank, right. There's only, there's only so much debt I as a person can support because of my, my personal financials. So that, that mm -hmm. was really the only limit limit on the up, upper end. I, I looked at, um, a couple really small companies, you know, doing much less than that, like one or two folks. Mm -hmm. I looked at some companies a little bit bigger than that. And then I actually did write an offer on a company that was uh, doing about 5 million a year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I got the farthest on that one, but it actually came down to the, the finances where, you know, the bank wasn't willing to, to lend me enough money to put into the business and the owner didn't want to finance enough of it uh, either. So that, that's kind of where I ran into that ceiling where, you know, I had a strong offer. Um, I was, I valued it properly according to the owner. Um, but I just, I just didn't have the financial horsepower on my end to, to put it all together. Just curious, has that shop subsequently sold or is the owner still with, with that shop? No, that shop did sell. Um, so my offer was competing against, uh, another shop owner actually, mm -hmm. Um, and they had an all cash offer. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of funny cause I still talk to that owner today and he still mentors me a little bit. Um, and he, he told me after the fact, he's like, I wanted, I wanted to sell to you so bad because I, I, I liked you. I liked who you were. I liked your vision and your thought and your, your plan, but I just, he couldn't take that financial risk, you know, of financing the whole thing for me. So he's like, he, he told me that afterwards, he said, I'm going to go with the other offer. It's all cash. 
Um, Mm -hmm. but he committed to me that, you know, he said, if there's anything you ever need, any advice, anything, you don't hesitate to call me and I will, I'll help you as much as I can. And he's been a great resource to me. Um, he actually, he consulted with me when I first took over the shop. Uh, we did not have an ERP system in place. So Mm -hmm. he helped me navigate those waters and we kind of went through it and looked at a bunch of different ERP systems and narrowed it down. And and he actually helped me get that whole thing implemented. How many shops did you end up looking at in the two years? Um, I'd say I probably looked at a dozen, but I only got to a stage to where we were actually communicating and writing offers back and forth on four of them. And was that because you decided not to go further or was it something else or a variety? Yeah, I think it was a variety. Um, a couple of them, I, I didn't want to move forward, especially after visiting the shop and seeing it. I was like, no, this is, this is not what I'm looking for. You know, there were a couple um, really antiquated shops, you know, where it was nothing but manual machines and you could tell they kind of stopped growing 20, 30 years ago type of thing. Um, so that, that those kind of self-eliminated themselves. Um, and then there were a couple more where, you know, they were thinking about selling, but when it came down to it, weren't really interested in selling. Um, so they just never kicked off, never went anywhere. Um, and then the other four, you know, we always, we got to the offer stage. We, I looked at financials, I analyzed financials, but then we kind of got into the issue of, you know, the job shop is always more valuable to the owner, the, especially the one that's been there for so long mm. than it might look on paper. And that's where, that's where the big struggle was, was my offers were coming in much lower than what their value was. Um, and it's, Let, you know, let's, it's, let's, let's talk about yeah. that for a second, because that is really common out there. And yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of job shop owners who are listening now that are considering exiting their shop. They have a certain value in mind, but the value may not be what the market values. So what what could you say to a job shop owner, one of those owners who you didn't want to pursue because their value was higher than really what the market was. Any, any thoughts there? Well, the first thing I would say is if you're trying to value your own company, have a, have a reason for the number you come up with, right? Like, I mean, we all kind of feel like, Oh, my company is worth about this, but why, why is it worth that? And it's gotta be tangible. It can't be, can't be because, you know, we're the nicest machine shop in town and these are the nicest group of guys like that. You know what I mean? Like it's gotta be tangible. Um, and that's where I, my, my approach looking at it was, was financial. You know, I, uh, I, I based it on a cash flow model. So, uh, just like I kind of did when I was underwriting, I took these companies financials and I, I boiled them down to, to cash flow. And, and I figured that I could pay, a four times multiple on cash flow. So, you know, if, if a company is cash flowing a hundred thousand dollars a year, I would put that valuation around 400,000. Um, that's, and, and I kind of backed into that for my own purposes. Um, one knowing that I didn't have a ton of money, I wasn't buying this company with cash. So I had to finance it. I had to 
had to pay that debt. And so Mm -hmm. my, my goal was to get into a company that had decent cash flow that could support the debt payments, um, with the company finance and also pay myself a decent enough living to where, you know, I'm not eating ramen noodles along with my four year old that, (laughs) you know, I can, I can eat something else (laughs) if I want, but, uh, did you then take the current owner's salary and put that into the cash flow and then take out a number for yourself to get to the final cash flow number? Is that, was that how you did it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I added things uh, back like, like interest expense. I, I added that back because I knew that my debt was going to be replacing all of their debts. So mm-hmm. I added back interest expense. I added back owner's salary, um, the uh, you know a couple of the owners they had season bronco tickets on their financials right so i added that <laughs> stuff kind of back everything yeah. that wasn't necessary for the business to operate it i added back into the financials and then i took out you know my debt payment that i would need to finance the company the salary that i was looking to have i took that out uh took took out you know a little bit here and there for for growth opportunities or or further investment. So yeah, it was uh, a lot of adding back things that were coming out of the financials and then subtracting what I knew I was going to have to put into it to get to that final cash flow number. And then, like I said, I, you know, I tried to base it on a four times multiple, but that really was my, my starting point for the conversation. I wasn't hard and fast on four times multiple. It was, it was, let's start here. And if we're in the ballpark, you know, we can wiggle up or down. Um, mm-hmm. But that was my starting point. You mentioned that you financed. So did you work with a bank to do the financing? Um, I tried and uh, it just didn't work. Uh, it, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have enough down payment and it was hard for banks to understand the collateral value of a machine shop. Mm-hmm. You know, of course they could look at the CNCs and get that, but so much of a machine shop's assets are tied up in tooling and other inspection equipment, things that are harder to value. So I, I tried a couple of times, but it just never worked out. Um, so what, what I ended up doing here in this shop was a, an owner of carry. Um, and, and I just, I got, I got lucky enough that, I found an owner who was willing to do that. And in fact, a couple of the owners that I wrote offers on were willing to do that. Um, so basically, you, you know, we, we agreed on a, on a down payment. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it was just about every penny of my life savings <laughs> as a down payment into sure. the shop. And then uh, he carried the rest. So we, we wrote a formal loan agreement and I make loan payments to him every single month. What was the term length of the loan? I did a 15 year loan, which was pretty long, actually. Yes. Um, yes. I didn't think I was going to get away with that. Uh, and this is where I think my, my expertise in banking kind of came in a little bit. Um, so yeah, we did a 15 year fully, fully amortized, uh, in, uh, loan, which, which benefited me greatly. Um, I had, I had thrown out there on other offers though, where we would do like a 10 year loan and maybe reprice after five years or something like that, or have a, have a bull, you know, a balloon period after five years. But, uh, 
I was lucky enough to secure the the full 15 years here. Um, and we're, we're ahead of that now. We're, uh, we're, you know, we'll have that paid off well before 15 years. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but from my coming into the, the business, you know, not knowing the business well, I, I wanted to be as conservative as I could on the cash flow because I knew I knew it was going to be a challenge, and I didn't want to run it, you know, as tight as I could. I wanted to leave as much wiggle room financially as I could, um, and it. I'm glad I did because the first couple of years were tough, and there was a lot of things I changed that I didn't anticipate changing, and a, a lot of money was spent that I didn't anticipate spending. Um, and, and we used up every bit of that slack that I had built in early on. Um, and it's, it's now starting to pay dividends though. Things are turning around and, and we're, we're really hitting our stride now. Um, so we'll really make some great progress here in the next couple of years. But, uh, it took every bit of everything I had, uh, built in and every cushion I had built in, uh, to get this thing turned around and move the, the direction I wanted to go. I had the same experience the within the first two years. We were probably a month or two of if sales had not increased even the incremental incremental amount that they did, then we may not have made it in within the first two years. So there's a lot of unanticipated expenses that come up. And I was fortunate enough to have a mentor who told me beyond what I was even projecting to have a 20% cash cushion. And if I hadn't, if I hadn't had that, we would not have made it. I think though, it's really important for job shop owners who are looking to exit to understand that there are not a lot of cash buyers out there. And that the buyers like yourself who want to acquire a machine shop, the banks are not necessarily their friends in helping them come up with the money that a job shop owner wants, even if it's a reasonable price all the way around. The financing is really an issue for the buyer. And that job shop owners, if they truly want to sell their shop, probably need to be prepared before they begin the process to think about how much they are willing to take back in the purchase price, essentially, as you said, carry the note from the buyer, because if they are not willing to do so, they're probably either not going to sell their shop or they're going to sell it for a lot less money than they anticipate. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, you know, unfortunately if you, if you're, if you're, I think less than $5 million cash flow or $5 million profit, which means you're obviously much, much bigger than that in sales. There just isn't a market. There's no market there. Um, and you're going to have to find and develop your own market, which means you're going to have to find another shop that wants to buy you out because they want to grow or an individual like myself that wants to get into the business, wants to own a business, but doesn't want to start from scratch. Um, but the, the flip side is that is, is you're not going to get cashed out. Uh, it's very unlikely that, cause honestly, if I, if I look back on it and if I had, you know, the money that I spent on this shop, if I had that in the bank, 
why wouldn't I have just started my own shop from scratch? You know, right, I could have right. bought a couple CNC machines and hired a couple of guys and we would have been off and running. Um, so yeah, the, the, the people that are going to buy out a job shop, they're, they're not going to have that cash out option. Um, so you, you want to, you know, really try to get your valuation in line and, and figure out where your company truly is. And I think it's probably at minimum a three year process to exit because really? any, any individual, any bank, they're going to look back at least three years. Okay. So if you're, if you want to maximize that valuation, you need to have very strong, very clean financials for three years in a row, or you're going to take, you know, your valuation is going to be lower than what you anticipate it to be. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, when I, when I say things like some of these owners had, you know, season tickets to the Broncos on there, they're paying for their wives and their kids' cars to the business. Like right. those are the kind of things that you need to have out of the financials. Um, that way, you know, someone that's looking at taking over that business is seeing what the business truly does. Um, and, and that's what you need to have for a couple of years in a row with strong, you know, strong profitable years. Otherwise you're, you're going to be trying to sell the shop and you're going to have to convince that person that, you know, okay, we lost money last year, but here's why we lost money and here's why it's going to pay dividends in the future. Um, and at that point, you know, it's, it's up to that individual that's going to buy it, whether they believe that story is true or not. And if they're going to want to take that extra risk. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that information on, how you went about bringing uh, focused on machining into your life. I want to make sure we have some time to talk about specifically what your shop does. So what types of processes do you offer? So we are strictly machining. Um, when I, when I took over the company, they were doing welding, they were doing some fab. Um, they were doing all kinds of little odds and ends jobs. Uh, I've really worked hard to move us to a strictly CNC machine shop. Um, so we have, we have both mills and lathes. We mm -hmm. have seven uh, CNC mills. One of them is a horizontal mill and then we have three lathes as well. So we, when it comes to machining, we can do, you know, just about anything. Uh, we're not in the multi-axis world yet um, outside of our horizontal that has a full fourth axis. So there are limitations when it comes to the fifth axis. Um, but, you know, we, we, we provide just about any machining services that we've come across out there. Um, and, and yeah, so we, we like, you know, like our name says, we're, we're focused on machining and that's what we do. We don't, I don't reach outside the box when someone, you know, I've looked at a lot of jobs that have come into the shop or opportunities, I should say, where mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's welding and building these fixtures and structures for other people. And we just have kind of stayed away from it. You know, uh, I've found that especially early on when I took over the shop and we were doing that kind of stuff, you know, I don't want my CNC machinist welding parts together. I don't want right. him fabbing sheet metal. Like he's a CNC machinist. I'm paying him to be a CNC machinist. And if he's doing other things other than CNC machining, we're losing money. Makes sense. If someone was to walk through your shop, what types of parts, materials, quantities would they see running through the shop and what 
what are you guys really good at? What do you guys like to do? Sure. So we're, we're what I call a commercially focused shop. Um, so we're not doing aerospace, you know, we're not involved in, um, anything that goes outer space, any of the defense stuff. Um, our bread and butter is commercial products. Uh, whether it's, you know, our, one of our big customers makes a can filling machine for microbrew systems. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, a lot of brackets, a lot of housings, a lot of, uh, parts that they assemble together to build their machine. Um, so a lot of other industrial type components, um, you know, you think, so there's a, a couple companies here in Colorado, uh, medical device or medical companies, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily like surgery applications like you might think. Um, this one medical company who's a customer of ours is all about automated storage and file retention. So they're oh. literally building like file warehouses where it's robotically driven. And so we're making parts for that robotically driven system. Um, huh. A lot of automation integration companies. So a lot of, a lot of engineering firms that are building automation systems for big companies, a lot of opportunities for custom machine parts in that business. Um, so that being said, our quantities are kind of all over the map a little bit. I'd say traditional, you know, everyday job here is going to be five to 20 pieces. Um, a lot of 6061 uh, aluminum, a lot of plastics, a lot of acetals, delrins, polycarbonates, um, some steel, a little bit, not not too much steel, but a lot of stainless steel as well, especially in our food and beverage customers. A lot of 300 series stainless, uh, 17.4. So nothing nothing crazy, um, not a lot of outside the box materials, um, mm-hmm. but uh, it, we're definitely a low uh, low volume, high mix shop. So we have, we like at any, any, any one point in time in the shop, we could have 20 to 70 different jobs going on at the same time. Um, so a lot, very high mix, a lot of different parts going on, but not a lot of high quantities. We're, we're getting more towards the higher quantity stuff, mm-hmm. um, especially as some of these customer of ours, they're having more success and they're selling more of their machines. We're getting to the higher quantities. Um, but it's not our, our average for sure. What are you doing to set yourself apart from other machine shops? Well, um, you know, I hate to say quality because everybody says quality, but you've got to have a good looking part, right? Um, yes. Especially a lot of our customers parts are on the outside exterior or visible to their customers. So we're very conscious about how our part looks, even though it's within print. If it's got chatter on it, it's not going out the door. Um, You know, it's got to be smooth, clean Um, tool marks. You know, we we're conscious about tool marks on the exterior of the part. Uh, We tumble as much as we can, as much as our customer allows. We tumble. Uh, I try not to hand sand on parts too much because it's just kind of time consuming. Right. But uh, we try to have clean, sharp looking parts um, that that just are aesthetically pleasing. And it, we've noticed that it, it stands out. You know, it's it's not enough just to hit tolerances on a print. 
but to do that and make the part beautiful at the same time, um, that's where we really get noticed and, and our customers, uh, you know, come back to us and say, holy cow, you guys have done an amazing job. Um, but the flip side of that is, is, is you've got to be price competitive, right? You can't, right. you can't price yourself 20% higher and say, my part's going to be prettier than that guy's parts. I guarantee it. You're just not going to garner 20% more for that. Um, so it's, it's doing all those things, but still remaining price competitive because in our, in our commercial space, uh, price is usually king. So it's, it comes down to price quite a bit for us. So we find ourselves competing on price quite a bit. How about technology? How do you use that to differentiate yourself with other machine shops? Yeah, I would say I'm a, I'm a huge believer and pusher for technology. Um, it helps, you know, that I'm uh, in my mid thirties, so I'm already technology driven. Um, but you know, every, every one of my machinists has a brand new laptop at their station. Uh, we, we, you know, we use Mastercam. We're on the latest model of cat Mastercam. We pay for that upgrade every single year. Um, and the, every single one of my machinists, whether they know how to program or not, they have access to that, that Mastercam software so they can pull up that 3d model. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking at the 3d models every day. Um, of course the ERP system, that was the very first thing I did when I bought the shop. I implemented the ERP system to integrate technology into the shop floor to have mm-hmm. a standardized, you know, job traveler, have a method of, of how, how we take orders, how we process the order through the shop, how we ship, how we invoice, um, without an ERP system, boy, that's a, a nightmare to handle. And you really can't grow beyond a certain level without it because otherwise it's, it's one person running around with their hair on fire every day, keeping track of everything. Um, which so ER- we do that. Which ERP system? Uh, we're with E2, ShopTech E2. So we, we signed up with them, uh, six months after I took over the shop. Uh, it's been fantastic. When we, when we first started, it was kind of an older server based model. You know, it looked old, it felt old. Um, but this summer they rolled out their new web platform and we've migrated to that. So it's, it's really handy. Uh, my, myself and my production manager, we both have tablets. We can walk around the shop floor. We can, we can integrate with E2 right there on the tablet. We can look up any job. We can see what the status is of any job with the tablet right there on the shop floor. Um, I've also recently implemented uh, machine monitoring software. So on two of on two of my machines, I'm monitoring uh, cycles. I'm monitoring, you know, up cycle, down cycle, how often they're in cycle. I'm tracking utilization rates. Uh, again, it's just it's a piece of technology that tells me, you know, are we being efficient? Did we, did we use that machine as much as we could have, as much as we should have? Are right. we, are we getting the capacity? I think we should be getting, um, cause it's, you know, it's impossible to stand out there and keep my eye on every guy every single day. But when I can look back and see that, okay, he hit, you know, his, his target for the day, he hit that 70% or whatever it is, or, or, you know, why did you only, why was your machine only in cycle for 30% of the day? You know, what happened? Was there a breakdown, quality issue, programming? You know, for me, that technology piece is really allowing me to understand our pitfalls. Um, you know, I noticed when we, 
we, we, we have this, we have a customer that has, you know, they order ones and twos from us mm-hmm. a lot and their parts are pretty complicated. There's a lot going on. Uh, and I found through this machine monitoring that we were drastically undervaluing our programming time. You know, I was kind of allotting maybe an hour of program time and mm-hmm. I'm finding on some of these jobs that's taking two, three hours um, and in a 10, 10 hour day, that's 20 or 30% of the day gone that you didn't bill for essentially. So that technology piece is really allowing me to understand, you know, what our utilizations are on the machine and, and how, how are we winning or losing on based on time? Um, Which software most, did you implement for machine monitoring? Uh, it's called SciTech, S-Y-T-E-C. Um, I went to IMTS this year and I looked at every single one of them out there. And they were the only one that had an open pricing structure. So they told me what the price of it was right then and there on the spot. And it's no formula, right? It's, it's, it's a one-time setup fee to get you set up on the system with the software. And then you play, uh, they have multiple tiers, which have different, um, different, you know, capabilities, but, uh, the base tier, like I am, it's $50 a month per machine. That's it. It's, it doesn't get any easier than that. So I went with them based on price. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, you know, machine monitoring was something I knew I wanted and needed and needed to understand, but I didn't have a ton of extra money to pay for it. Right. Like it was kind of one of those things was like, this isn't going to put money back in my pocket immediately, but in the long term, it will. And I need to get into this and get into it now. So I kind of bit the bullet. I put it on two of our newer machines that were easier to hook up. Um, and now, now I'm starting to understand the value of it. And we're going to start adding it on other machines. We're probably going to bump up levels to where now my machinists can interact with it and they can tell me why they were down. Um, so, you know, I don't have to go ask the question. Now I can see, oh, I was down for an hour because I was waiting on quality or machine maintenance or programming. So that's probably our next step to bump up to that. I love it. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. You and then also, the, the final. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say the the final piece of technology which we just recently implemented, maybe four or five weeks ago, was uh, a digital quoting platform um, where where we're uploading CAD files and it's kind of analyzing run times for us and and getting that whole quoting process started. Um, and uh, it's it's been fantastic. Like I said, we're still early on with it, but uh, it's it's really saved a ton of time quoting. And in a small shop like mine, where my production manager is not only doing scheduling and estimating, he's running a machine on certain days. He's running the saw. He's he's you know he's doing so many things, and so am I. That uh, it's it saved us a ton of time on quoting. Um, so that's something I'm really excited about going forward, which we, we just got our feet wet. Um, but, uh, it's going to be a huge time saver for us. And what are you using there? Uh, it's called paperless parts. So Sweet. it's, um, uh, it's a third party company, you know, they, uh, they, they provide the software platform to you. You log into it, uh, via the web. And like I said, you, you upload your CAD files and, uh, you, you kind of build it out on the back end based on your shop rate or, or what have you. Um, and then it, it'll analyze the run times based on that 3d model 
based on the parameters you put into it. So it's really taking the, you know, I used to, my old method used to be take the print, hand it to a machinist. Okay. How long does it take to make this? You know, how, how many setups, how much time for each setup? And then what's your runtime? Um, it takes that completely out of the mix and analyzes it in seconds, you know, maybe minutes on the long end. Uh, mm-hmm. And it applies those times and gives you that cost. Uh, I built in my setup times in there. So it knows, you know, if it's this many setups, it's this many minutes, you multiply it by shop rate, there's your price for setup. And then, you know, it's, it might say, okay, for to make this part, it's 20 minutes total cycle. And it will apply my shop rate to that 20 minutes spit out the price and and then I got to go in, I got to add material and any outside processing, but uh, it really makes it quick. Excellent. Tell me about the 3D printer that you've brought in-house. That sounds really cool. Yeah, so we we actually brought in our first 3D. We have two of them now. We, uh, we mm-hmm. brought in our first 3D printer last Thanksgiving, um, and it was, a, it was a Black Friday special on Amazon, um, it was this tiny little, you know, 3D printer from China called the Ender 3, uh, super low level, uh, you know, nothing fancy. We even had to put the darn thing together ourselves when we got it here. Um, but me and my production manager, you know, we you hear so much about 3D printing, right? And then, of course, at IMTS, we saw a ton of 3D printers and big 3D printers. And mm-hmm. we just we just were like, let's it was $200 uh, on Black Friday and it came with wow. a spool of filament. So we're like, let's buy it. Let's just buy it. And, and I just had a feeling though, like this is going to be one of those things where you don't really know what it can do until you play around with it. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we bought it, we brought it in the shop and we just started playing. We started making stupid toys. We started printing things and realizing, you know, it's, it's not as easy as it seems, but it's as cool as it seems. Um, and, uh, yeah, we started tinkering around, playing with it. When before you know, we all started thinking differently about how to make things for the shop. And we have little, like I have uh, little plastic things on the sides of a lot of my CNCs to, uh, you know, hang calipers on or or hang other tools for the machinist uh, that we've <laughs> 3D printed. So it started off real kind of crazy like that, and uh, we had. Uh, we had this customer actually from the West coast reach out to us and they wanted us to machine, um, basically a test tube holder. Um, so he, mm-hmm. in his company, he, he will take different types of seeds, put them in a test tube together and shake the crap out of them. And somehow that cross pollinates them cross whatever. And he comes up with a hybrids. Um, I don't really understand how that works, but essentially he wanted us to take a piece of plastic, drill a bunch of holes in it so he could put a bunch of test tubes in it and then make a top piece that had basically a ledge around it that would hold the test tubes together. And then it had a bolt hole through the whole thing where he could bolt it together and he would hold all these test tubes and put them in basically a giant paint shaker and shake them all up. Um, And so we, you know, we, we quoted it and, you know, with the plastic and the machining and this and that, it was, it was a little higher than he wanted to spend. And it, of course it was going to be a couple of weeks to make. And, and so I looked at it and I was like, God, it's just plastic. And, and I threw it out there. I said, Hey, what about letting us 3d print this for you? He was like, he was like, yeah. He's like, I don't, I don't care how, how it, 
how you make it, right? And right. and it wasn't going in water. It wasn't going. It wasn't interacting with chemicals, so we weren't worried about the plastic deteriorating. Uh, but uh, so he he sent us mo- models, and six hours later we had the part printed and we sent it to him, and he was blown away. He was like, "Holy cow!" He's like, "This is more than I could have ever asked for." You know, it it's way stronger than I thought. It's it's better than I thought. Um, and he turned around and ordered five more of them right away. Um, so we printed all of them and, and we paid for that little printer, you know, 10 times over on that one job. Um, and then that's when it really was like, Oh, okay, this is, we need to, we need to think about this seriously. And this needs to be part of our product offering. And, and, um, you know, not only, not only for customers, but for internal innovation, uh, so we started doing a lot of research into different types of materials because the, the PLA, which is just a very generic plastic that uh, our little 3D printer was printing, it's it's water, you know, like it'll break down over time and, and it deteriorates in, in water and other chemicals. So it's not a it's not a good industrial application. So um we reached out to a company local to us called the 3d print store and that's all they do is 3d print prototypes for customers so i kind of reached out to them and said hey we're looking at this a little more seriously you know we want to think about this and, mm-hmm. and we started talking about internal applications and he reached out to me uh back and he was like well what can we do for you i mean what do you need around the shop? What's something that you buy a bunch of and they're kind of expensive that we can try to print and, and see, you know, let you see what the, the benefit of this is. And uh, we had just so happened to have purchased a new tombstone for our horizontal mm-hmm. that uh, is modular. So I have, I have this modular tombstone in my horizontal where it's basically serrated rails so you can move devices up and down. You can put as many devices as you want, um, but they're real small. They're only two inches wide by about an inch deep, right? So real small little work holding pieces. Uh, the jaws for this thing are like $80 a piece, right? And to fully, to fully stock this thing, I need 80 of them because I have enough places for 80. So right. I'm like, oh, man, uh, I don't know how I'm going to be able to stock this thing up unless I have a customer that has the application for it. So I started reaching out to them and I was like, Hey, you know, I have, I have these jaws. I sent them the CAD file. It's a soup. It's no different than any other jaw, right? Like a, like a six inch vice jaw, just a piece of aluminum, same mm-hmm. thing, but think, you know, two inches wide by an inch tall, just little. Um, so I, I reached out to them and I said, can we print these? And that's when we started really getting into the conversations about, okay, what, what does this need to withstand? What, what are the forces being applied? What is the environment like, um, so we sent them, you know, we sent them the SDS on our coolant and we told them about the coolant and the machines and the chips. Um, mm-hmm. Then we told them, you know, we took out some torque wrenches and I kind of had some of my guys, you know, clamp like they're clamping on a part. And so we kind of narrowed in on how much force these things need to be applied to. And they ran with it from there. They printed us five different um, jaw samples and they printed them out of an abs plastic we printed them out of a carbon uh uh, polycarbonate we printed some out of a fiberglass filled nylon and then finally we printed them out of a um, an abs uh, filled with carbon fiber 
And that was finally the winner for us. So we brought all these samples back to the shop and we literally just put them in our vices and we took our piece of round stock and we clamped on them and everything else like was squishy, you know, like it didn't feel squishy to touch, but when you started applying force to it, you could see the metal denting into the plastic. And obviously that's just not going to work for work holding. It's not repeatable. It's not rigid enough um, until we got to that carbon fiber one. Um, and we actually cranked it up and we're getting almost 1900 pounds of force into that carbon fiber before it started giving and denting in. Um, so the work holding pieces that you would have had to purchase from the manufacturer, they were made out of aluminum or were they even steel? They were a steel. Yeah. He didn't, he doesn't offer this, this vice company doesn't offer an aluminum one. We've made aluminum ones ourselves, but to get into a, a steel one, um, it was like 80 bucks a piece. Um, so you replace steel it, with a carbon fiber filled ABS. Yes. And, uh, yeah, at first we replaced it with aluminum in the shop, but it, it ties up a machine, right? You got to buy yeah. the material. I got to pay my machinist to make them. Um, and it, it came out to, I think the aluminum ones were pricing out in the $10 range. So still not much, but mm-hmm. the ABS carbon fiber, we push a button and it prints 20 of them, you know, with no one taking a look at it. And the material, uh, were sub $2 a piece. Wow. Conservatively. Wow. I mean, a, a, a spool, a one kilogram spool of ABS carbon fiber is like $20. And I could probably get a hundred or more parts out of that spool. So it's the, the savings have, have this, gone through the roof. This is how we change custom part manufacturing. I love it. That's right. And that's the exciting part is now. So I have a, I have a customer, um, a new customer that we just got maybe two months ago. They, and I don't want to say their name, but they, they are a 3d printer builder. So they build <laughs> 3d printers that are printing aluminum, titanium, stainless steel, very high end machines. Mm-hmm. Um, this company also has a sales division where they're, they're 3D print, printing parts for customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they reached out to me. They found us on our website. Um, and uh, they reached out to me with a couple of really cool parts that they 3D printed that they needed some very easy machining on, right? Like we just needed to, to clean a surface and to tap a hole on this one part. But it was this crazy geometry that a traditional machinist would be like, there is no way to hold on to that part in a side of machine. And he's right. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't machine, you could machine a jaw, but it's going to take you a week to make the jaw just to hold the darn part. Well, mm-hmm. we took, we took his 3d file. We imported it into our master and in master cam software in the new software, they have this tool where basically you can make a negative, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. we, we took that crazy geometry, we made a negative, and then we took that negative, put it into our jaw, and we 3D printed a jaw, and now we're holding onto this part with really good work holding um, in, in a completely customized fixture that, that maybe cost us $5 to make. That is very exciting, Justin. Yeah, it's cool. That's and a I, great and story. This this customer, you know, they came about maybe I want to say two months ago. Let's say two months ago, I've already done over twenty thousand dollars in business with them in two months. 
Perfect. Just because of our, our willingness to, to think outside the box. And, you know, cause he told me, he's like, I've been to every machine shop I could find and no one even looks at these parts. And, and we were like, yeah, we'll, we'll look at it. And not only will we look at it, but we did it and we figured it out. And it's, it's been a great relationship since. My belief with the ability for 3d printing to do what it's able to do today, the advancement in the materials and the more flexibility of the both design software and tools like MasterCam, where you can use it for design as well as the actual creation of the manufacturing instruction set. But the opportunity for machine shops today is to think about the ability to treat a 3D printed and additive manufactured part as a near net shape part and be able to bring it to its final dimensioned characteristics. So yeah. the machining is not a billet machining from stock machining, but it's more what has been done in the past to metal castings and working right. with near net right. shape, being able to hold geometries that are not necessarily rectilinear. So right. I think you are on the right track there. And I also encourage other job shop owners to think about how they can get into the near net shape manufacturing business. Because if you have that skill set, you will find lots of business with customers who are 3D printing parts. And you may have a 3D printer in-house yourself. You may be working with supplied materials, but that is the future. It's yeah. going to increase more and more. And it sounds like you're getting a head start. Yeah. I, I feel like the 3D printing industry and the machining industry are not at odds with each other. Like a lot of people want to, to place them, right? The, yeah. the success for both of them is the marriage of those two. It's, it's the unbelievably crazy 3D printed part, but then it has accurately machined critical features that can't be achieved through 3D printing. And that's really the success of the two industries is when they come together and make an outstanding product together. We've been chatting for quite a while here, and I could keep going on about some of the things that we've already talked about and get in even more granular on that. But before we wrap this up, can you give me some quick bullet points on your ISO certification process? Because it's unusual for a smaller shop to be ISO certified. And how did you do it differently that made it so that it didn't bring down the shop while that was happening? Yeah. So, uh, I think one of my advantages um, in this whole ISO thing was I, I didn't even know what the heck ISO was before I got here, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I mean, that to me was just three letters. Like, what does that mean? Um, so I, I got I got to the shop and then through the individuals I had already working at the shop, uh, the shop was ISO certified when I bought it, but it literally was expiring um, right as I bought the company. And so we let it lapse. Um, and after going back and looking at the quality manual that was written and how the ISO process was written with the company, it forced the company's hand to perform a certain way because of ISO. 
Does that make sense? Yes. I think I think a lot of job shop owners will understand yes. what I say what, or what I mean when I say that. Yes. Was it it bogged the company down to meet requirements uh, due to ISO. So the next, so I bought the company. ISO lapsed. We weren't ISO certified anymore, which wasn't a super huge deal. But there was this one customer that we were really pursuing um, that we knew could be a big customer, but they were not going to do business with us were if we were not ISO certified. So I started looking into ISO certification and I had at the time uh, a gal working for me kind of as a saleswoman slash um, kind of office administrator doing all things, guiding me down this path as a, as a new owner. And she had been in, in manufacturing for 20, 30 excuse me, 30 years, you know, so she had tons of experience. Um, so I kind of set her up and I said, I want you to really look into ISO for me. What is it going to take? What do we have to do? Um, and she, you know, she went out there and she, and she found some ISO systems and she said, here's what we got to do. Here's the process we have to put in place. And, and here's what we need to do to be ISO certified. So I started reading through the package she had put together and I started understanding the procedures that, she wanted us to do, you know, based on her experience. And I quickly saw, I was like, there's no way, there's absolutely no way we can, (laughs) we can support this, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's two people in the office and six machinists or more. How do we support this system? You know, it's it's like, there's no way I could fathom it. So then I started just doing my own research and what is ISO? And I, we downloaded the standard. I read that, damn standard probably 30 times right like and i still don't know if i understand it it's it's such a weird language and just the way it's written just doesn't necessarily blend well to reading but uh i read through it and i read through it and i read through it and i tried to really understand what does iso want me to do what what are they trying to get at here um and then once i understood that that's when i started writing our our own quality manual and I think my unique approach about ISO was I wrote our ISO system based around the company that already existed and the individuals we had in place to support it, not the other way around. I think a lot of people get into ISO and they, they, they get a blanket, you know, they hire a consultant or they get a, a, a blanket quality manual. Okay, now the company needs to fit within that. I did it the other way around where I said the ISO system needs to fit with our company and how we do business. Um, so it was, it was a painful process. And uh, me and that, that gal, we, we, we worked together. Uh, we worked against each other a lot. Um, mm. But I was adamant that we will be ISO certified and we will do it with two people in the office, um, you know, including quality and everything. So we just started thinking about every process, right? Like, if you think about how work flows through a job shop, that was my whole goal, right? Like starts with the RFQ, right? You get the opportunity, then you quote it, then you win the work, then you, you know, order the material, you make the part, you send it to outside process. If it's there, you inspect it, you ship it, you bill for it, you receive the money. That's kind of the flow of work. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I just started at the beginning and started writing our procedures to meet the IS, the ISO standard, but how did that fit with our shop? You know, so we have, um, 
I kind of have like what I call a three-legged stool, if you will, where there's there's three people that integrate with our ISO system, and each one is kind of checking the other um, to make sure that mistakes aren't made and to have that double, you know, standard, if you will, to to make sure that things are being done properly. So, you know, our procedures are very plainly written. Um, they're 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 not a lot of fancy language. It's it's very everyday terms. It's very simple. Uh, my quality manual, I want to say, is like 20 pages long. Uh, it's not very long at all. But uh, it's, you know, I just went through it and said, okay, we get the RFQ. How do we receive RFQs? We receive them usually via email, maybe a phone call. What do we do with the RFQ? That You know, we download it into our system. We save it in an RFQ folder. Um, we analyze the part, uh, and we ask kind of three questions, right? Can we make this, yes or no? Should we make this? Yes or no? And then we go from there to establish pricing based on these criteria. Um, once that's all packaged together, you know, we send the quote to the customer. Customer responds to the quote. We receive the order. The order is generated, you know, via our ERP system. So we 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 put the PO in the ERP system. We put the part numbers, um, and that's really where we leverage the ERP system. I don't. I don't think I could be ISO certified with as small as I am without an ERP system because um, right. it, it does so much for you. It keeps track of so much for you. I don't think I could do it without that. So we definitely leverage our ERP system a lot. Um, you know, we keep track, our, our ERP system keeps track of obviously part numbers, prints, uh, revisions, dates, due dates, uh, customer shipping requirements, PO requirements. So it handles all of it really handles the bulk of the ISO system um, as far as the traceability and, and all that. Um, but uh, the, I think the big unique thing for us was we wrote ISO around the company, not the other way around. Um, and I, and I, I tell people uh, that still today. I was at a, uh, an NTMA event, which is the National Tooling Machining Association. Uh, I was at an event uh, in LA, I want to say in February, and one of the uh, one of the meetings was just a roundtable, and it was it was probably thirty people. It was you know it was it was job shop owners, it was employees, it was it was other folks in the industry, and it was kind of just a big session of, hey, what what's what's going on in the shop? What what questions do you have? And then let's just chat about it as a group. Uh, it's super valuable. I, I've gone to many of these events, and that that. Uh, that session, the the roundtable is by far the most valuable that's out there. Um, so one of the one of the young guys, um, he had a he had a, young, a small fab shop in L.A. I think he's like five five people, right? And they do custom custom parts for vehicles, and it's kind of a a marriage between machining and fab. Um, but he wanted to be ISO certified because he wanted to get into a, a bigger line of business. And his comment was, you know, I, I, I've looked into consultants and I, I've, I've purchased quality manuals. He's like, there's just no way we can be ISO certified um, and be as small as we are. Um, and, he, and then he said, you know, he's like, I'm not even sure it's going to be profitable enough for us to do. And so my response to him was, was, was two things. Was one, you know, don't look at ISO for being profitable. If you want to be ISO certified, think of it like we should do this because it's going to make us a better company. 
It's going to, you know, all the things that ISO wants you to do are all to benefit the company. It's all to, to be uh, an upstanding organization um, Uh to where your customer knows when I order a part from you, I know it's going to come back to me to print with inspect on time at a great price. Uh, And to me, that's what ISO does is it, is it validates your shop. Uh, You know, it's, it says we, we follow these standards and we meet these standards of ISO. And that's how you know that we're a legitimate shop and you're going to get your parts and your uh, order taken care of on time and accurately. Um, so I told him, I said, if you really want to do ISO, do it for yourself. Not, not because, um, you know, not because you want to try to generate more revenue or not to chase a customer, even though that's what I did. Um, I, I realized the benefit of ISO afterwards and it's really it should be internally focused, right? Let's, let's do ISO because we want to be a better shop and we want to have these processes in place because once you get the processes in place, the shop the shop can't not grow, right? I mean, when you when you get processes in place like that and you take care of customers the way they want to be taken care of because of the systems you put in place, you're going to just get more work and you're going to be more successful. Um, so that was one. And then the, the second thing I told him was, was you need to write your ISO system and your quality manual based on how you operate today. Don't Don't mm-hmm. completely change the way you do things to meet ISO, right? Force ISO to meet you. Um, and as I told him, I said, it's not going to be easy. And you're going to, you know, th- those first couple of audits, you're going to have some issues and you're going to, you're going to have some arguments with that auditor. But, but these auditors, you know, they're used to seeing tons of manuals, quality manuals and different systems, but they're all so similar that when they see a different one, it kind of throws them for a loop. So I said, em- embrace that, right? Like embrace, embrace the the challenging the auditor and and, and really fight with them and, and say, you know, here's how we met this standard and here's the standard, here's how we're meeting it and here's how we're meeting it within our company. You know, we're not we're not doing it the way ISO says or wants us to do or someone else. This is what we do and this is how we can prove that it meets that standard. Um, so that's kind of been my approach to ISO was was to really you know, write it based on our company and our processes. That way it doesn't overburden the shop. Cause I, you know, I, I can't have more people in the office than I do machinists. Uh, I just no. can't do that. No. Um, so we, we had to find a way to support this system without being overly burdensome. That makes sense. Where can customers get more information about focused on machining? Do you have a website, Facebook page? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, website's the best. Uh, so just www.focusedonmachining.com. Um, we have a, a nice website out there. Kind of has a bunch of information about who we are, uh, about who I am, what we do. Um, and, and very soon, I don't have it up yet, but uh, very soon we're going to have a whole page or pages dedicated towards parts that we make. So uh, being oh, the great. idea that uh, you can literally see parts that we've made to get a better idea of, of capability from our shop. So uh, look for that coming out very soon. Justin, it's been great to chat with you. I think it's really exciting to see people in their thirties get into custom part manufacturing because you're bringing into 
the custom part world, the mindset of applying technology to make the business run better throughout the shop. You're, you're applying it to the front end, you're applying it to the shop floor. And I think with what you've done in the short time you really have owned a shop, you've really given our listeners some practical, solid ideas on how they can apply these technologies, technologies that are available today. And these are the types of changes, yeah, that owners are going to make, that they can make, they're going to raise the bar for both an individual shop as well as as the individual shops raise the bar to force other shops to raise the bar in general for custom manufacturing in the U S. So I think this is a fantastic, uh, I, I just am really appreciative for you getting into the industry, making the commitment, putting essentially your life savings on the line. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really, really enjoy, you know, sharing as much as I've learned, um, in this business in the short time I've been there. And I, uh, I, I, I freely offer up that advice and I'll offer that up to any of the listeners too. If, if you do have questions, you know, don't hesitate, reach out on our website, give me a call. Uh, I'd be, I'd be glad to provide any advice or, or just talk through issues you might be having at your shop, uh, at any time. Well, Cause, great. uh, I, you know, I feel like, I definitely feel like the job shop world is a community and then if we don't support each other, it's, it, it doesn't help. So I think uh, I really enjoy supporting other shops as well. And, and hopefully we can, like you said, we can raise the bar for everybody. That's very generous of you, Justin. Well, that's it for another episode of the job shop show. Thanks for listening and keep those spindles turning and spinning. Take care. All right, Justin, that, Man, I could have kept talking to you for another hour or two. But, uh, <laughs> we'll have to do it again. I, I, yeah. I like that. I mean, there's so many topics to cover, so we could definitely, you know, do do another one of these down the road. That'd be great. Yeah, I had a a, a question, quick question for you. The yeah. uh, you mentioned you have salespeople coming in all the time. Do you really actually get salespeople uh, walking through the door these days? Oh God, yeah. Um, really? You know, metal sales. You know, machine sales. Uh, HR services, sales, and, huh. and and I don't have a great setup to filter that. My office is literally right next to the front well, door. Yeah, uh, but I, it's it, it's yeah. amazing to me that because I I see that there's a lot less salespeople on the road, so maybe it's a more regional type characteristic because I just don't see a lot of outside salespeople here. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it, it, maybe it's not. A lot compared to what it used to be, but it feels like a lot to me, you know, when, yeah, when they're, when they're taking getting, up my precious time, right? Getting interrupted, yeah. 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 Well, this, is, this has been a lot of fun, and yes, perhaps we will get the opportunity to uh, get together. You know, one of the things that we are thinking of doing, I'll just run this by you because I always like to beta test stuff, is similar to like the NTMA is yeah. having a... I don't know if you want to call it a, a user group, a conference, whatever, for people who are customers of paperless parts, job shops, and putting yeah. that together, you know, say January, February down in somewhere warm where you can get to pretty easily. Sure. But focusing on a lot of the things that, that we talked about, just the, the cutting edge technologies and not making it a paperless parts focus, but... Essentially, sure. how, how do you, 
what's the best way to get equipment financing uh, and right. actually make it, my idea at least, is to get job shop owners to do quick 15-minute presentations on a, on a topic. And, you know, maybe there's three presentations on finance, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, getting a, working with banks, getting an equipment loan, and then have a 15-minute roundtable. So put together a bunch of those things over, say, a day and a half. W- would that be something that you would want to attend, would be of interest? Oh, easy. Yeah, I mean, I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. Uh, it, it's funny because before I started going to these NTMA events, um, it was something that was like, oh, man, I'd like to go to that, but it's going to take a day out of the shop, right? I just don't have the time. Yeah. I don't have you know the time to do that, to go, to travel. But uh, I, I went to my first one, and I immediately realized the, the immense value that I got from the presentations, from the, you know, the other shop owners that were just there to chat with and to, to, to bounce ideas off of. It's, it's invaluable what, what that community-type scenario does. Uh, it, you know, we're, we're not in this alone. And I said that before, you know, like sometimes I feel like I'm on an island, right? Like I'm the yeah. only the only person making these decisions or dealing with these problems, but it's just not the case. And we got we to gotta get in touch with each other more to, to, to deal with those issues. And, and, you know, people have great ideas and yeah. some of them, you know, might work for you. Some of them might not, but uh, it's, it's, it's fun to get together and understand, you know, maybe I'm having this one issue and that shop owner, God, he's done a great job at solving that issue. How did you do that? What did you do? What did you figure out and and take those back and implement them at the shop and, and everybody gets better because of it. So yeah, if you, if you put something like that together, you sign me up uh, customer number one. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks very much. You were so generous with your time and I, uh, I'm looking forward to this getting out there and people hearing what you had to say. Yeah, me too. Uh, thank you for, for including me and inviting me on this. And, uh, I, you know, like I said, can't wait to do it again sometimes. So keep me in mind. Will do. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day, Justin. You too. Thanks. Take care.